They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed them on When there was earth to plow Or guns to bear I was always there Right on the job They used to tell me This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. This is episode 100 of Rumble with Michael Moore. So we were thinking here uh, this week, what what should we do for episode 100, something special? And and we're batting around this idea and that idea. And then finally I said, you know, I think because it's kind of special, it should should be about family. It It should be my family. It's my rumble, and I haven't really brought the audience in too close or personal to my family. And so that was when we remembered that I actually visited a place where my family, some of them, were from. Back when we were on the trail with Bernie Sanders uh, in uh, January and February, we found ourselves in the state of Iowa for the Iowa caucus. You remember the Iowa caucus, don't you? The brilliant brilliantly managed Iowa caucus. <laughs> we'll never do one of those again, right, folks? Yeah. So this is, remember, that was pre-pandemic. So all you're making the list, right, of all the things we're never going to do again, where we're just saying, fuck that. That's the end of that. Okay, that's one of them, right? We all agree on that. No more Iowa caucuses. It has to be a real primary run by the state. Everybody votes. Everybody has a chance to vote. Every vote is counted. A novel idea. Anyways. But so we were, so we were going down I eighty uh, there in Iowa one day, and there we see a sign for the exit ramp, and it says um, Herbert Hoover Presidential uh, Library and Museum and birthplace. And now, of course, that may not float your boat. You got work to do. You're trying to help, you know, Bernie get elected. You don't have any real free time, but but Herbert Hoover, I had discovered in the past year, and I'm not going to really tell the story now. I'm going to let me tell it from me talking into this microphone uh, back in um, early, very early February, and I'll just let you hear the, st- the story there uh, because it's uh, it's kind of a wackadoodle uh, story. Uh, so why don't we, I'm going to roll this and this is now, this is me. Now you're going to hear probably a little different tone in my, in my voice and my attitude, because this was, again, as I said, pre coronavirus, uh, we weren't wearing, wearing face masks. We were oblivious to what was about to hit us. And we, we just, you know, we're just happy go lucky Americans there on February 1st, the, uh, <laughs> I'm not really laughing. I sound like I'm laughing, but um, I thought this would be a good a good way to celebrate episode 100 by letting you experience it with me and and some of my family. There's so much that's been going on this week. I don't even want to get into it right now, or we'll never get to the family reunion here. But um, suffice it to say, I'm on top of it. Uh, we will be. Uh, uh, dealing with the news of the week here, especially the most recent news that uh, uh, oh, Trump has decided to, to tell the hospitals across the country that they're not to report their statistics about the coronavirus to the CDC. 
He does not want there to be an actual count of what's really going on. He thinks by not counting the number of cases and the number of dead, it will just somehow go away and that will guarantee his reelection. We'll get into all of this. This is very serious and it's very dangerous. And I don't know what other word to use for him right now other than murderer. Um, because even, let's say he's just that stupid and he doesn't know that the actions he's taking is now causing the deaths of even more tens of thousands of people, more than the tens of thousands that have died as a result of him. And as Dr. Red Leonard told us on the previous podcast, if this inaction by our federal government and the stupidity of our leadership continues, we are very likely uh, by the end of the year to have anywhere from 800,000 to 1.5 million deaths. So um, we're in a lot of trouble. We'll get to that here in the upcoming uh, podcast, plus other things I want to talk to you about regarding uh, the election and various uh, dribs and drabs of, of things that all of us need to be working on. But for today, this is a happy day. And not just because Ruth Bader Ginsburg is out of the hospital. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Let's, let's turn it over to a happier time, February, around February 1st, somewhere in there, uh, in the state of Iowa with myself, Basil, Veronica, but we took a few, a few minutes out uh, for this family moment uh, with myself, and my sister there present, and 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 others you're about to hear from. Uh, enjoy uh, this podcast, and uh, I'll be back with you right at the end of it. Okay, take care. Once I built a railroad, I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad. Now it's done, brother, can you spare a dime? Hi, this is Michael Moore, and you're listening to Rumble with Michael Moore, uh, my podcast here. Uh, thank you all for tuning in today, and I'm with relatives uh, today, <laughs> and uh, uh, well, not the actual people uh, you'll be uh, hearing from, but I'm at, a, I'm at an old family homestead in Iowa. Now, of course, I did not know these people were family until a year ago sometime when Henry Louis Gates, his show on PBS, Finding Your Roots, uh, told me that I was uh, related to one of the 45 presidents of the United States. Of course, immediately I said Obama. And uh, <laughs> they were polite in telling me no, it was not President Obama. And it wasn't uh, President Kennedy. So that took care of the Irish Catholic piece of, of, of the family. Um, I think I think there's only been one actual practicing Catholic uh, elected president, I think, still to this day. Is that right? And that was uh, Kennedy. And he said, no, he said, turn the page. When I was on the show, he turned the page. And staring back at me was a picture. I didn't need to look at the caption. I knew who it was. It was Herbert Hoover. And now Herbert Hoover, for those of you my age and older, you, you of course, you know who he is. And he was the president uh, elected in 1928. He served for four years until... January of, or March, actually, is when they had the inauguration back then of 1933. And he was defeated by Franklin Roosevelt, uh, for Roosevelt's first uh, term. Hoover is known by, again, most generations, and as it's still taught in the history books, as the president who, actually, the way he was taught to me was, he's the guy that gave you the Great Depression. <laughs> so he's elected in 28. He takes office in March of 29. And the Wall Street crash happens in October of 29. So this is really, we're talking seven months later 
the depression happened. So of course he's not president before this and leading up to it. And it always kind of, I always kind of wondered, you know, what his role was in it, why he saddled with it. Cause it happened on his term. It wasn't, I'm sure the same as, I mean, George W. Bush, I mean, nine 11 happened just, uh, you know, 10 months into his presidency, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm here at the Hoover library, the presidential library in West branch, Iowa. And uh, it sits next to his birthplace, a little, a little tiny house, uh, here in uh, West Branch, and the house sits on part of its National Park Service uh, property, and the library is part of the National Archives. So I'm inside the library right now to say hi uh, to if there are any of my relatives uh, here uh, working at the Hoover Library. If not, now, but but first I had to grapple with the fact that I was related to Herbert Hoover. Well, I mean, my dad and his family—they're all were Democrats. They were Roosevelt Democrats, and they were it was you know big Democrats. <laughs> so. Hoover was the last Republican president. After after he was gone, there wasn't another Republican president until Dwight Eisenhower in uh, elected 1952. So that's quite a long span to go without one one party is not being in the White House. And um, so I, I told my friends and family, and well, the friends were all laughing because aha, you're related to a Republican, and the family was more in like, no, come on, are you serious? I said, yeah, yeah, and as Henry Louis Gates explained on the show, this line of my family, which is on my dad's side, and his it's on his dad's side, the Moors had married into the Hoovers someplace back. It's out on the family tree here in the library. That that and that the the Hoovers and who was a family that came from Germany, south of Hanover. And that was shocked. I don't think that was the biggest thing we were so shocked at that we we thought we were hundred percent Irish. And the fact that we had some German in us, it was like, boy, that took weeks actually it's still taking me some time to try to no offense to the germans by the way the germans are if you ever met any germans in the 21st century most of them are the most peaceful people most intelligent wonderful i mean germany just did this incredible thing a couple years ago where and i don't know if they did it out of just pity for us or they're just being good neighbors or they're grateful to america but they've made it now so that you uh can come as an american and go to college in germany free of charge tuition free and they will set up courses for you that are all taught in English so you don't have to learn German. I thought, wow, okay, these are good people. Having said that, now I'm now that I'm I found out that I have a piece of German in me. So I uh, so uh, I I never honestly God, I didn't know any of the part of this history. I had no idea I was related to Herbert Hoover. And and it turns out that my fifth great grandfather was Herbert Hoover's uh, third great-grandfather. So we're cousins. Actually, to, to officially, we are fourth cousins, twice removed. <laughs> I've never understood the twice removed part. When we were growing up as kids, I always thought that was, you know, somebody, somebody, uh, one of our fellow Catholics in the family that married a Protestant. And so they added, they added the word removed in there for some reason. The tree. So, uh, but that's not what it means. But anyway, so we're, so Herbert Hoover's uh, my fourth cousin. And as I have learned to do in my lifetime, instead of running away from that, which seems not right, that sometimes it's better to lean into it and to embrace it and, and see what I can learn about it. So for these last few months, I've actually been studying uh, Herbert Hoover and learning more and more about him. I had no idea that he was a Quaker, that there are Quakers in our family. And in our line, in Hoover, Hoover Hoover's line with me, are these our Quakers uh, who wrote books, our uh, uh, Hoover Quakers who, well, one of them, one of our great, 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 great grandparents, 
refused to fight in the War of eighteen twelve. And do you know? Do you know about this? Uh, this person in the family. He, he would not fight. He was a Quaker. Quakers are opposed to war, and, and they're they've always been an exemption, even in our draft uh, here in this country. But but he uh, he would he would not, and so he was arrested and tried, and he had to pay a fine. They didn't put him in jail, but he had to, I think he had to give up twelve goats or something. I don't know what it was. It was <laughs> something, but he wouldn't. He just the Quakers are like diametrically opposed to the killing of any other human being, regardless of the reason, and so. So that's what I learned, and and I had no idea I was ever going to be in Iowa. Not that I mean I had been here before, but you know, you no offense against the, Iowa, the Iowans are going to hear this and go, "What is he talking about?" It's just not necessarily a vacation destination. When the kids say, "Hey, Dad, Mom, let's go to Iowa," those words, I'm sorry, have never been spoken in any family. It's it's, it's Disney World, then Disneyland. Uh, then someplace, but we were here, we've been here now for over 24 hours and we stayed last night at the comfort Inn uh, here just uh, down the road. Um, and there is a big sign out front that says a 100 foot water slide is right there at the comfort <laughs> Inn. So I'm just saying, this is again, these are not, these are not underwriters of our, our podcast here, the Iowa tourism department, but I'm just saying there are huge water slides here in, in Iowa, a landlocked state. So, um, so you know they love their water whenever they can get it. Anyways, enough of all this. I am here uh, today with a group of people who are, are the archivists uh, here uh, at the Hoover Presidential Library and site. Why don't I just have you introduce yourselves? And well, you're the, you're the, uh, you're the chief, uh, uh, what is your official title? The chief of Chiefs? I am a supervisory archivist, Craig Wright. Uh, Craig Wright mm -hmm. and Craig. Um, and uh, are you from Iowa here or are you uh, from nearby? Or I spent most of my Wonder Bread years growing up in Michigan. Oh, in Michigan. Oh, okay. Never heard of it. Um, <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> people write into the show, Flint. Mike. You know, it's no, it's become fans of the podcast now. It's a drinking game. When, how long before Mike mentions either Michigan, Flint, the Tigers? <laughs> you know, so my apologies, but where, where in Michigan? I grew up in uh, Royal Oak. Royal Oak, right. One of the Detroit suburbs. Sure, sure. All right. Uh, uh, so famous uh, people from Royal Oak are Glenn Fry from the Eagles. Yes. Uh, Tom Hayden, a uh, very famous activist and helped to write the Port Huron Statement back in the 60s. And uh, um, who else? Uh, were you born in Beaumont Hospital? or Actually, I was born in California. Oh, you were? My father designed cars for General Motors for 37 years. So uh, quite young, I, I ended up in the Detroit area. Oh, wow. when it, before I had moved twice before I was a year old from okay. California to, to Michigan. And Craig, who else do we have in the room here? Uh, my name is Elizabeth Dinchel, and I am archivist and education specialist here at the Hoover. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Dinchel. Yes. And where, where are you originally from? Um, I was born in Miami, Florida and lived in Florida my whole life. I moved here to come work at the Hoover. Oh, wow. Oh, that's very cool. And I'm behind you over here is... Um, Lynn Smith. I'm Lynn? the audiovisual archivist. I work with the pictures and I'm a native of Chicagoland. Chicagoland. Okay, great. Well, so you're all from around different places in the country and you find yourselves here at the, at the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library. Am I saying the name the right way? The Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and... Museum. And museum, and or is it just museum? No, no, it's library, library. and museum. Yeah. Craig, you were saying earlier that this is probably the smallest of the presidential. That is correct. Libraries. Yeah. Are there presidential libraries for presidents before 
uh, Herbert Hoover. There are, uh, but they're not, they're not federal run. They're okay, so not official run right. by the so, archives. So like the Lincoln is run by the state of of Illinois, yeah. not the National Archives. Right, yep. right. Yep. Uh, so we just had a little tour <laughs> of the uh, of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum, um, and I learned another twenty seven things I didn't know about uh, about Herbert Hoover. And um, so I'm just I'm just curious. I guess I want to dive into the right into the question that I think um, most people have when they think of Herbert Hoover, which is the Great Depression. You know, this was an awful, awful thing that happened to the American people in October of 1929. And from then until pretty much the beginning of World War II, people had it really, really rough. The unemployment rate was through the roof. People There were bread lines, soup lines, potato lines. I mean, whatever they could get in line for to just uh, get by. I remember my grandmother telling me that if they were able to have like a roast beef on a Sunday once a month where they could have an actual meat dinner, people will willingly give up meat now for, you know, right. they, they don't have to give it up. <laughs> They're actually giving it up for health or, or environmental reasons. Right. But back then uh, it was a staple of protein and um, it was very difficult for people People couldn't get jobs. I know my, my grandfather was difficult. I mean, my, and my dad himself, my dad and my mom, were bo- both went to high school from uh, 1935 to 1939. So they lived through it. Um, my mom's father was like a country doctor. Uh, I don't even know if, I, well, there's no such term now. It meant that he went to medical school for one year. Ah. And because every <laughs> everything they could teach him could be taught in a year, but but there, but you you could go a hundred miles with there being no doctors, so they had to have these what they call village doctors or country doctors, and, and so that my grandfather was that. But but during the depression, he, he never took a dime from anybody. He was paid in eggs and milk and chickens and whatever else anybody could do if they could fix the front porch or whatever. Uh, it was a barter system, right? You know, to to get by. Since I found out that Herbert Hoover was my cousin, um, I suddenly started to think like uh, maybe I should check into him a little bit more and uh, and and see if like me he got in a raw deal. Um, so uh, <laughs> it's um, uh, and I'm just going to turn it over to you to to give us this sort of now from a, from the lens of almost a hundred years later, what happened. What was Herbert Hoover's role in it happening, and then what did he try uh, to do about it? Well, so I'm not an economist, and they're still arguing about what exactly caused all this. Um, we do know that uh, while he was Secretary of Commerce, he was warning President Coolidge that he things were uh, not going well and that we might be in for some hard times, but he was ignored at the time. Also, when he became president... He actually was trying to get Wall Street because things were like a 90% margin given at the time, which is not a good thing and, and caused problems. And so he was essentially trying to get Wall Street to back down. They're like, wait a minute, president's not allowed to do this. You got no say over us. And so he actually had his banker friends go and try to talk to them and maybe have a more reasonable policy. And they were, they were equally ignored. But it's a time when the president... We were more associating a, a more presidential power and direct control these days than we're at, at the time. And Hoover was more of a constant, the hands-off kind of fellow, uh, in my opinion. Uh, also, but We should also state, though, for people yeah. listening to this, 
because we're in the Hoover uh, uh, Library Museum, mm-hmm. this is run by the National Archives. That is correct. So that means it is a nonpartisan government uh, agency. Right. Correct. It's not run by the Republican Party. Nope. It's not. It's not run even by the Hoover family. Once nope. I got here and found out there would be no relatives of mine here today, <laughs> uh, so I now have to look for another place to crash tonight. But that's okay. The people in Iowa are very friendly, by the way. I don't know yes. if you've noticed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, right away. See, right there. She just said, right, we'll set you up. I invited right. you over to put right. furniture together. Right. There you go. So <laughs> so I so I know I'm in, I'm in good hands uh, no matter where I turn in Iowa. But your job here, your job, your job, is to essentially be living historians right. to help us understand the past. And, and, and people know this if you've been to the Nixon Library or the Reagan Library or whatever. They're very honest about um, the flaws as well as the good right, things. Right. In in uh, in the and I know people are saying, "What good things were there from Nixon?" Well, but see again, you need to go. You go to these libraries. You really do a little research. Yeah. You know, Nixon gave us the Environmental Protection Agency. Nixon gave. I can go, I can go down a list of things. Went, went to China. Exactly right to try, try to st- st- stop yeah. the whole stop the whole uh, anti uh, you know China thing. So yeah, so he right. did. Uh, but that's about as much time we want to spend on Nixon today. Right. Uh, <laughs> Which does have family in the area, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but he's a Quaker. I know. I yeah. know. Yeah. I have a picture of a 17-year-old Nixon visiting West Branch. Yeah, but see, I don't even want to, I don't want to mention him in the same breath as Hoover oh, because, okay. well, I'll tell you why. Because, I mean, the, the, it's this historical fact that the mm. Christmas bombing of North Vietnam, North Vietnam in 1972 mm. uh, is the largest bombing of the United States in terms of number of bombs dropped than in any war that we were, and that includes World War II or any war over the during the Christmas week of 72. And and if you know that one fact, or if you look at, and the studies, again, they don't know how many Southeast Asians died in that war. It could be 2 million, if heard as high as 4 million, if you count Laotians and Cambodians or whatever. That is not the work of a Quaker. Right. Um, right. And Herbert Hoover, and from what I've learned, did nothing really but the work of a Quaker so on the tour, you pointed out that Hoover set up all this food relief, fed 800, 900 million people over the period of his lifetime with the relief agencies that either he helped to set up or run or was a part of. And he was not a soldier. He lived by his Quaker beliefs. And as an adult, by the way, you don't have to live by the beliefs you were raised in and whatever. You can choose your own. But he chose to, to live his life in this manner. So- let me let me just go back to what you were saying. You right. are not an economist, right? And I, I, what I would like to do is just sort of phrase one of those historians that I think have good valid points as they see Hoover as a transitional person, yeah. where he feels the federal government should do things to help mitigate suffering. So, and coming from a business coming from a businessman, it was more acceptable to certain people. But when you sort of compare with what came afterward, it seems like a small drop in the bucket. But without that click. The, the things that followed might not have happened. Like, for instance, what was he, what did he think the government should do to help people uh, in need? But he felt that, uh, like, uh, his successor is famous for public works programs. Uh, they sent out a thing, they set up 800 million. Again, the scale is not as big, but he sent around letters to every governor of every, every state saying, What do you need? Yeah. And they all said nothing. 
Well, and I think it's also important to say that Andrew Mellon wow. said, you know, we right. should leave everything alone. Right. We'd had economic panics before, and the policy was not to try to manipulate the economic market. That right. would be disastrous. So Andrew Mellon's philosophy was that you leave it, he was called a leave it alone liquidationist. So as things started to get bad, people would liquidate their assets and the economy would start to kickstart. But that didn't happen. And that's when they started saying, like, well, we need bread lines. We need something. I think for context, there is no Social Security. There's no unemployment insurance at this time. There's no Medicare. There's no Medicaid. People, this is a different time where there's no social safety net to catch you. So Hoover's going around and asking corporations and NGOs like the Red Cross to step in and start helping people at the state level. You know, we think about Monopoly and there's the community chest. That was a real thing. The communities were pulling from this chest to help feed people. And so Hoover was actively trying to kind of stir up just local activism and local volunteerism and local generosity so that people could be fed or have jobs. He asked people not to lower wages. Um, There was a lot of gentlemen's handshakes that weren't held up because the businesses simply couldn't do it. So So he was trying. So leading up to the depression, before the crash, um, he was- And after. But you you say that he saw this coming. He saw that- that the potential for it to come he was concerned yes yes right so then when it came in october of mm-hmm. 1929 mm-hmm. the crash mm-hmm. what's the history of that day for him and the day after that and the week after that one of the things that people don't realize is there weren't a lot of closures and stuff right from the get-go you don't see start seeing significant bank closings until a full year later mm. if you look at the new york times and all these what happened in this year no one mentioned the depression Mm. because it really hadn't really started to grab people yet. Right. And, and uh, but what you sort of see is he wants to increase public works programs. It actually, he also forgotten is the depression for the farmers, the agricultural community started in 1921. And one of his planks of running in 1928 is we need to figure out a way to help the farmers. I come from New Deal Democrat farmers, but they never had a bad word to say about Herbert Hoover because the first thing he did when he got in office was call a special session of Congress and try to find ways to help the farmers. Mm-hmm. So they always felt he was on their side, even though, like I said, they become New, they become New Deal Democrats, but they never had a bad word to say about him because they... And I, one of the things I believe that hurt Hoover is he's not a very personable or emotional guy in public. So uh, he, he wasn't known as a great orator. He was not known as a great orator. And uh, he hadn't figured out because radio was so new. Uh, he was a big supporter of radio and helping radio right. exist, but right. they hadn't fairly figured out right. how he could use radio to communicate right. uh, with the American public. And some of his people, there's a sample. He loved baseball and he would actually go down and watch kids playing stickball in Washington, DC. And his people are like, you need a better public you need a better public appearance. Let these, let us, let them take pictures of you watching the kids. He goes, that's exploiting kids for my personal gain. That was a line he would never cross. So you're saying that there was a president in the first half of the 20th century that believed he should not do things to exploit people uh, for his own personal gain while in office. <laughs> yes. that, that, that is uh, very true. Yes. Okay, yes. good. I just wanted to, I wanted yeah. to make sure. Yeah. I, I had not known that that could actually things could work, <laughs> work that way. Yeah, Even he didn't, he blocked off his grandchildren. Okay, by the time he and Mrs. Hoover were in the White House, his children were adults. 
but they had little kids that were born in 27, 28, 29 in that, in that time frame. And they would get their pictures, you know, go to, go to the photo studio, get your picture taken. But he didn't want those publicized. Mm. Even Mrs. Mm. Hoover, there was, you know, mm. a company that took the pictures, had a picture of one of the kids in the window. She's like, oh, no, 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 that's not going to stand. Mm-hmm. So they wrote to them to remove the picture. That did happen. Uh, when Herbert Hoover Jr. was taken ill and he was in a hospital in North Carolina, the grandkids, the two grandkids lived with him and Mrs. Hoover in the White House. They had a little playroom. It was a great time. They would walk hand in hand with dad from grandpa from one end of the White House to the other, sometimes outside. And maybe once in a while there'd be a picture, but it would He'd make sure that that was not in the news that, you know, Herbert Hoover is hanging out with his grandkids and isn't that cute. Oh, wow, wow. Ooh. You know, right. that little awe picture that you'd see all over social media today. Right, right. He wouldn't right. want particularly his own kids, his own grandchildren, to be exploited for right. his personal gain. The crash happens in October of 29. Yeah. It takes a while for the banks. They start to close. Yep. And then businesses close and yep. people are laid off. Yep. And certainly by the end of 1930 and 31, it's pretty rough. Yep. And what is he doing about it to stop the bleeding? Well, I mean, that's the thing that there's, this comes back to Mellon saying like, there really isn't anything we can do. And one of the things that's this still- This is Mellon of- uh, Andrew Mellon, Andrew Secretary Mellon, of Treasury. The one who told, one who told Hoover that- uh, don't, Leave don't it alone, alone, right. Don't have the government involved. Right. But, that, that's, is this the same Mellon as Carnegie Mellon? No, I don't think so. Andrew Mellon. Andrew Andrew Mellon. Mellon. Secretary of Treasury. Yeah, but I mean, at this point, there's this big debate about do you inflate the American dollar or do you hold to the gold standard? And Hoover decided to stick to the gold standard instead of inflate the dollar. And this was one of the two different approaches that occurred between him and FDR. And if you listen to the Hoover Institute and people there, and and Margaret will tell you the same, um, that there's some blame to be put on the Treasury for how that was handled. Because the dollar probably could have been inflated under Hoover, but he was really adamant about sticking to the gold standard under the advice of Mellon. So there's some like complicated economic stuff that's going on that they were not, there was no precedent for it, and they were afraid of making it worse, which I think was probably a pretty legitimate fear. So instead of like trying to find out the cause of what's going on, they decided to start treating the symptoms by making sure that people were getting fed in public work there's shovel-ready jobs that are coming up, but also improving infrastructure started under Hoover and continued under FDR. And we see FDR get a lot of credit for it, but a lot of it started under Hoover. Things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, we know, kind of really started with him. And Reconstruction some of, Finance Corporation, the right. home builders. He's, there's, he's trying to get money into the hands of of people. So there were, and a number of these programs were increased and and are well-known during the the Roosevelt administration. And so sometimes, again, people think he might have planted some seeds that help. And one of, I forget the name, but one of Roosevelt's economic folks said Hoover's policy caused us to stop and bottom out so we could start recovering. Mm. And uh, so... He, the, and uh, so one of the misconceptions often people have is he was sort of laissez-faire because that's what Mellon's approach was. But he never got along with Mellon. He actually makes him ambassador to Great Britain, and he's working with Ogden Mills, who becomes later secretary-treasurer because they both feel the government 
has a role. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, so by the way, by saying is the, the scale of that is smaller. And I'm not sure they realize, the, you know, the scale of this. I mentioned the Red Cross had traditionally helped with, with right. disasters. There's no FEMA and these kinds of things. And, but they had been successful in that 1927 flood we talked about, well, we talked about briefly during our tour. Um, and uh, they were able to, to deal that. But the scale of this was so much larger. They weren't at a, you know, they raised like $17 million to help flood relief in 27, but they're only able to raise like $5 million during the depths of the Great Depression because there's not as much money around to be had. How do you get money from guys who are sitting in line in the soup for the soup kitchen? Right. Well, and the Dust Bowl exasperated everything, too. There's major droughts and, and, you know, huge environmental disaster going on as well. So it wasn't just one thing. It just kept compounding to make it worse. Um, So it was a lot of things that, unfortunately, I don't think, especially at a time when the role of government was extremely limited, that it was within the purview of the government to fix it, like we think about the government now. So so in... in, um 1932, mm-hmm. when Roosevelt uh, beat Hoover, yeah. so he lost his re-election. But how badly did uh, badly. Roosevelt beat him? Oh, badly. Here, badly. Here, here's what it was there. Badly. he wins really by badly. the in 1928. Yeah. He wins by the biggest landslide to that point, and then in 32 loses by the biggest landslide to wow. that point. That sounds like the night I won the Oscar. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> seriously, they announced my name. Diane Lane announced my name, the envelope announcing, and there was a standing ovation for my movie, Bowling for Comedy. I'm like walking up the red carpet up to the stairs. There's huge. I see all these famous actors and everybody applauding. And it's not 30 seconds later where I'm being booed off the stage. Oh, my God. You know, because it's it's the fifth night of the Iraq war, and I just said something about the war, and oh, my God. Uh, So so that's not quite the same as what Hoover had to go through, but I know this feeling of- of, You're on the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain- in four years, yeah. the yeah. peak, the valley, yeah. boom. Yeah. yeah. That night as I was leaving the Oscars, the head of the Academy came up to me and he said, that literally set a record for the for the time between a standing ovation and being booed uh, <laughs> that uh, that I've ever seen here at the, in the history of the Oscars. So oh, I, my. At least I hold some kind of record there. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we uh, continue on here with the uh, family reunion, I just want to take a minute to welcome a new underwriter to Rumble. It's NetSuite by Oracle. So happy to have them supporting this uh, podcast. They are the number one cloud service that allows you to manage all of your company's day-to-day operations. Uh, they make it easy for you to maintain uh, your visibility uh, so you can have control over your financials and your inventory and your e-commerce and more. It's everything you need all in one place. So whether your business is large or small, NetSuite lets you manage every single penny with precision. It gives you agility to work from anywhere, which is cool, especially in this time. And you get to run your whole company essentially right from your phone, which is how I actually do run my company. Imagine if only Herbert Hoover had had this. All right. I'm serious. I mean, maybe he wouldn't have found himself in the trouble that he was in. So nonetheless, I want you to consider joining the over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite by Oracle. They're the world's number one cloud business system. And they are our newest underwriter here at Rumble. Uh, Their sponsorship of this podcast allows my voice to be heard by millions. And I am grateful for that. Please show them your support by contacting them and receiving your free guide to, it's called Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. It's a great guide to have 
and you can schedule a product tour. It's free at netsuite.com slash rumble. Free guide, free tour at netsuite. Now, let me spell netsuite out for you. That's N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E, netsuite, right? All one word. netsuite.com slash rumble. They have come on board to support the work of this podcast. Now, as we were saying... Okay, so he got walloped in 1932. And remember now, if my history is correct, the last time the American people had elected a Democrat was 1916 with Woodrow Wilson. Correct. Mm -hmm. And and so there have been no elected Democrat from 1960 until 1932. Correct. So, and then the history books, as they're written over the years, uh, they basically say that, uh, you know, they, 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 all you hear about Herbert Hoover is the Great Depression, and that's just about it. So now I'm here with you. You're a historian. Uh, you're nonpartisan. You don't have sides in this. You're on the side of history and facts. Uh, remember I love facts? that. Yes, we're facts. like history warriors. Yeah, you're history <laughs> warriors. Yes. Uh, all right. <laughs> if I just turn the microphone over to you, tell people what you think they should remember about Her- Herbert Hoover, and then tell us what you think, in your own subjective judgment, mm-hmm. is the best thing about the Herbert Hoover uh, presidency and and his life. And then tell us what you think are the is uh, a flaw or two in that, with the hindsight of history, mm-hmm. it would have been so much better maybe had X or Y happened uh, with him. That's a toughie. Uh, it's a lot to throw at you there, but uh, that, uh, but you know, um, uh, what was the first part of that question? The first, <laughs> yeah, the first, the first part was um, if you were writing mm-hmm. that page what, what in the, the in the high school history book, sure. Mm-hmm of of what would how would that page read the herbert hoover page but i like to say one the humanitarian effort because people in the united states associate him with the great depression everyone else in the world associates him with food when they were starving and one of the i'm digressing into a local thing but one of the things i love with our foundation is we have what they call the uncommon student award every year and that does not reward a student for academics or athletic prowess but for the public service that they give their communities. And that's what sort of Hoover was about. And some of his failings thinking, oh, Main Street's going to be able to take care of this regardless of the scale, even though the scale was too large, is because his experience has been that local people on Main Street were always able to sort of pull together and get and over things. Take care of each other. Yeah. And, and, so, lo- and local businesses would help. And Right. And uh, the thing that I, I like most about him, if you look at his philosophy, is he felt – Everyone, what we need to do is eradicate barriers that prevent people from achieving whatever they can with their own, under their own volition. Everyone should have equal opportunity. And he saw socialism a threat to that. He also saw capitalism as a potential threat to that as well. One of my favorite quotes is, the only problem with capitalism is the capitalists are too damn greedy. Mm, yeah. and But he's often pointed out, as a capitalist, when they, they often leave those parts out of his writings, that he saw danger that could encroach upon people's ability to achieve whatever they're You're saying that he saw that the fatal flaw of capitalism was that it's a system that might maybe just be encouraging people to um, do things that, that, that whatever that thing is in human nature, gr- greed. Right. Um, right. that it would, it would inspire those who had a larger greed, uh, right. element inside right. themselves. Right. 
uh, to go for it. Yeah, he was always a little naive. He always felt people are always going to work for the greater good. Mm. And when they did not, he occasionally he would be surprised. What right. you guys are getting together and fixing prices? Would That's you say, not where you're supposed to be there helping everybody. So that was maybe one of his flaws. That yeah. that uh, that yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah. And I also think he had a very thin skin. So. Mm. He took these things very personally. So, like, they were, towards the end of the, that mm-hmm. presidency, and a lot of people were sort of uh, heaping not so pleasant uh, things on him. Uh, he took that, I think, very personally, and I don't think that helped his case at all. Mm-hmm. I, when I think about Herbert Hoover's flu- flaws too, especially, you know, I spent a lot of time working on his Great Depression and relief stuff. We wrote a booklet about it. Um, the NAACP kept writing to him and saying, like, we need African-American people to be on your economic relief boards and we need help in, you know, the cities we think of being traditionally African-American in Baltimore, Washington, D.C., St. Louis, and they were just being ignored. And even though Lou Hoover desegregated the White House, there was this huge opportunity to kind of step up and push the country in a more progressive way. And they decided to stand down. Yes, Mm, Lou desegregated the White House, which is a remarkable thing. And it was brave. But when the fallout came from it, everybody clammed up instead of stepping up and saying, this is the new way things are going to be. Eleanor Roosevelt came in and did that later. And so she gets credit for it instead of Lou and Herbert Hoover. And there was this like window where we saw letters that came from African-American artists and, and famous people that said, well, can I come to the White House now and visit Lou? And the secretaries insulated them from those communications. So I think in some ways we could have moved our society forward more by kind of addressing things that were going on and there was some you know insulation from people who were the go-betweens between Lou and Herb and, and the public or even them wanting to stand down because there was before the Great Depression really kicked up, they were like, we're not going to reelect Hoover because you're having black people at the White House. I mean, horrible letters that came in, but they never came out and addressed it. And there, I think there was this time that it could have been done and it wasn't done. And I really think that's one of the weaknesses that we probably don't talk about enough because I think we find some things in our history to be painful. And I I know I hear white historians say, you know, it's difficult. And it's not difficult. It's just history. But it means that we have to confront it honestly and say, we failed at this time in history when we could have done Mm, something different. And I think that's one of these times in history. And I think it's unfortunate. Um, And I think he was doing what his party expected him to do. And towards the end, he had the Tuskegee Airmen Group out and he had um, a coalition of black voters out in 1932 at the White House. But it was like too little too late at that point. He was already on the way out. And I mean, we're fortunate that the Roosevelt's kind of picked up the torch and kept going with it. But a lot of the cities that needed help then still need help now. And I think that had we addressed it maybe back then, Mm. it, it would be better now. So 
I think there's a lot of different perspectives you can look at history from and especially for presidents and, and depending on who you are and how you've experienced American life can find different faults with different presidents. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that's an important point to talk about because we do look at economics so much, but we forget that, you know, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were using policies to make sure that white people were getting elected. We didn't have African-American elected officials un between 1901 and then until 1928, you know, so this, we had our first black congressman in 1928, which is why the white house was desegregated right. from the North, from mm. outside of Chicago. Yeah. Um, so it was a big deal. Mm. Um, so I, th I think that's something that we probably should spend some time looking at and talking about. And I, I hope when, we revisit the museum and renovate that that's something we do talk about because it is important. And, and I, and you guys don't is. take anything away from Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, you, no. Uh, no. cause I could, some people could make the argument. I think I just said I could make the argument <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying to hide behind other people. Right. Uh, no, but, but that, that he might've been our greatest president uh, to date that, that I know most people would say Lincoln or George Washington or, or, um, well, do we, I mean, it's a short list. Okay. Let's yeah. admit it. Hoover um, <laughs> doesn't rank usually among the lowest presidents. I mean, he's Eisenhower moving up in the polls. Them. He's kind of moving up uh, from he's a historian's perspective, or, yeah. Yeah. but he never has been. He's always been kind of middle of the pack, but I mean, that's the thing about history. We get the benefit of hindsight when we look at it and we leave the current interpretation to like the media journalist in 24 hour news cycles. And we give some time before we look back at it and reflect on actions and consequences and results, because we can't do that in real time. Let me yeah. ask you this. There's there, one yeah. little thing. Well, big thing, because it, it still impacts the United States today. Hoover set the groundwork for the veterans administration. Yes. The VA hospital and all of those things to take care of our warriors Going back, you know, starting with World War One, he hosted every summer, a day or two, on the White House lawn, uh, picnics mm -hmm. for injured World War One veterans. Except that's the other thing that the history books, if they do mention a second thing, it's the Hooverville. Right. It's the, you, you, it's you the see World that. War One veterans who are so upset that they weren't given what they were promised. Yeah, right. the bonus was promised for an, a payout in 1945, and that is the one thing on a plank political blank that franklin roosevelt and fdr agreed on not to pay the not to pay the bonus Wait, until 45 you said franklin roosevelt and franklin fdr roosevelt. For yeah. hoover and fdr FD, hoover, hoover and fdr, and FDR agreed both agreed to not pay the bonus until they were until it was due to be paid in 1945 and then well, they, so why wasn't it called uh hoover and rooseveltville <laughs> it started no, i'm wondering why did he then why was he stuck while well, he was yeah, president right because it just hooked that way. There was a lot of books and slanderous type publications that were floating around that everything was tagged with Hoover. And fake news is not new. I mean, we right. were looking at well, fake media and slanderous well, media. Well, and the handling forever. was different. I mean, right. one of the things happened when the bonus march happened in 32 Roosevelt writes and says, I just won the election because there's a lot of sympathy for the veterans, even though they couldn't get it. Because all you need to do is go out and talk to these guys and be social. So when it happened under the FDR uh, administration, Eleanor's out serving uh, serving sandwiches, and they're chatting. They're that they're saying no, but they're being social about it, and they're saying, "Yeah, we can't pay this out to you, but hey, we got a CCC camp down in Florida. Maybe you 
that will help you out because there wasn't really money to pay it out early because the treasury was fairly drained. Uh, so Congress said no, Hoover said no, Roosevelt said no, but Hoover was more afraid. 100,000 veterans sort of marched across the country. Uh, by the time they got to Washington, there was 100,000 veterans. And a lot of people were scared. This hasn't happened. This is a mob. First thing Hoover does is gets the railroads to say, we'll give free transportation back home to anyone who wants it. So 90,000 people go home. My guess is a lot of the people who are left maybe don't have a home to go to. Yes, we're supposed to get this money in 1945, but I don't have a place to stay or a job or food right now. Can so I get you, my money he, now? What do you, he send in the troops then on the ones that were left camped out there in the mall or? That gets really interesting. Well, there was essentially a starting to squat in buildings they were renovating in DC. They were very unsafe. Mm. Mm. And Hoover uh, basically, and the police tried to deal with it and they were unable to. They asked for the Secretary of War to send in troops. To, and Hoover said, move them out of the buildings, but you're not supposed to cross. The, the bridge into the Anacostia flat, Flats, where the tent city was. Mm -hmm. But who was is, who is in charge of the troops? There's a young man, a guy named Douglas MacArthur. Uh oh Who isn't really interested in what the president's instructions are. Mm -hmm. And his adjutant is a, a fellow named Dwight Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. And in his oral history, Dwight Eisenhower says, yes, there was a runner that came down from the president to remind him of his orders, but MacArthur refused to see him. Mm. And so, and so when I got here, they said, yeah, I said, when, when I first got here as a, a you know, a novice, I yeah. said, yeah, so MacArthur, so what did Hoover do to him for disobeying his orders? There's another what if that happens later in the Truman administration when finally he's taken to task. So, uh, but I think Hoover was afraid it was a mob as well. So he sort of went, you know, he didn't punish him for not following his orders. Right, right, so right. there is a, still a level of, you know, sad. Yeah, it's sad. And yeah. now, this, the even sadder still was they had lost, I think it was tear gas had caused the death of, of a, a child. But the following year, when they got these guys down to the CC camp, ironically, they get hit by a hurricane and dozens of people die. Mm. So mm. they're trying to help. I mean, history is full of little weird little things like that. It is. And I think one of the reasons we like and i think should study history is to look for whatever lessons we can draw right. from it for the present correct so what lessons from the herbert hoover four years in the white house what can we glean from that to help us in 2020 we're in an election year we have a president in the white house and i'm not asking this now as a political question oh, sure, sure. I'm, I'm just asking as a historian what are, what is the pro and the con of what we can learn from the hoover years in terms of what Americans should do, need to do, need to think about at least uh, for right now? In my opinion, when I use an example, there's a certain, again, I've sort of said this before, but for the common good. So for, here's an example under Hoover administration. He put, appoints three people to the Supreme Court. And, the, and Hoover believes it's important to have a balance of all views. So the last person he, he is, is a liberal because he wants balance on the Supreme Court and he feels that's important for the country to move together. So he has the sense of that rather than, rather than let's stack it with the people who are going to do what I want them to do. It's important to have all these viewpoints represented. And so in some level, I think he's trying to do always what's best 
for the whole country. For everybody, not for just everybody. for people who voted for me. Right, or or the people who are giving me money, the corporations who are giving, whatever it happens to be, he mm-hmm. seems to have this whole idea that I, I still admire is that, you, I was, and frankly, that some of the Democrats who had been the hardest on him said, this is the greatest thing you've done as president mm-hmm. because you're, you see the, 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 the benefits of having balance and having all voices represented as opposed to you think stacking them one way or the other. Do you think other? we're witnessing or are part of it, we're in our own transition right now from the politics of old to the way that they're done now? Are, are, is it possible for a party to essentially um, really no longer exist and that there a new party comes up like when the Whigs mm. you know, uh, ended and then out of that uh, came a, you know, a new party? And then even Lincoln, I mean, when the Republicans, I think the Republicans were... There's a fight between Wisconsin and Michigan as to where the Republican Party was founded. Right. <laughs> but but yep. we're, we're talking like 1856, 1854. Mm-hmm. And by 1860, they've got a Republican president in just uh, really less than six years. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, that happens all through history. And I think one of the things that's kind of frustrating now as a historian is it doesn't seem like basic knowledge, despite good high school classes in government, that the Republican and Democratic Party of today are not the Republican and Democratic Party of many years ago, and that there's been changes in philosophies. And like you said, we had the Whigs, we had the Bull Moose Party that came out. We had the Dixiecrats come out before. We've seen fractures in the party before. Right. So parties do change. They do change. When I was a kid, the Democratic Party was the party of segregation and George Wallace. Yep. Of course. So uh, speaking of the Dixiecrats. Speaking of of Strom Thurmond and his ghost. So, so, right. And and Republicans were the party of abolition and uh, getting rid of slavery and, and, um, but 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 something's happening now. I don't, I I can't quite speak to it in terms of what I think the overall is of this. But right. I think when we come out of this era, it won't be what it was before we entered this era. No, no. and you know I'm I'm kind of fortunate because I also have a degree in political science and have worked with some really great politicians along the course of my life. But um, the, very strange that in America we've gravitated to a two-party system, whereas in other parts of the world there's these multi-party systems or even party systems where you can register for two parties if you feel like it, and they're more oriented in single issue um, or you get a single issue and then the party resolves. Uh, but now we're just two parties, two parties, two parties, and so it doesn't matter what the issues are, we're going to take over one party or another party. Um, and I would say the American political system, the center has moved to the right over the years. And I don't, uh, I, I don't know what that means for the shift in the parties or the philosophies or how that's going to push forward over the future. I think that there might be an overall general shift in our political spectrum. And the center meaning that not the actual median of where public opinion is because right. Right. The, the majority of Americans have actually taken now the liberal position on just about every issue. You look at any poll, right. the majority of Americans yeah. believe climate change is real. They believe in a woman's right to choose. Uh, they believe women should be paid the same as men. I mean, the majority of Americans now take the liberal, the liberal position. And I think the mainstream has moved 
more to the left. But, but when you say you think the single, center, they're voting single f- uh, voter issues though right. now. So and that's where so kind of these fractures so are well? coming. How, why do they still do so well? I don't know. We can't comment on that. Well, no, no, I'm not, <laughs> no. But I'm just saying <laughs> that that if you look at the registered voters, there are more there are more people voting on the Democrat. Look at Congress because that's that's a that's a well, you know, some of it is straight our, up thing, and there are more people who vote for the congressional. Democrats mm-hmm. recently, I think in the majority of elections in the last 10 years or so. But some of this is structural that's built into the electoral college that, you know, was designed for a country hundreds of years ago and not the country of today where people and populations are thriving in urban centers. So now, you know, it's kind of weird that countries like or states like Iowa have the same number of senators as states like Florida, where I lived. Mm-hmm. There's massive population differences. So there isn't a good representation of, you know, the general consensus. It's more coming down to, you know, this electoral college is kind of dictating uh, what's going on. I think on. gerrymandering has a lot and to gerrymandering do with, with too. how things have moved oh, the man forward. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. and even voting rights is becoming more and more of an issue. Yeah. So there's a lot of things in play. But when right, the people right, who right. write our laws are the people that are getting elected, you know, it's, um, I don't know if there's a way to resolve that. If there, Congress isn't going to make gerrymandering illegal. That's how they get elected. So mm. I don't, I don't know what the solution is. But but, con- I, but here's but, I, but here's why I'm a weird optimist is because you're right. I appreciate you, that because <laughs> I know you're right because why would they do, why would they get rid of gerrymandering? It's how they got in some parts their job. Absolutely. But also, why would they ever agree to the uh, the the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote because they were all men. Women had to convince bodies, not just the Congress, but state legislatures that were literally, in most states, 100% male but to let women vote. Men lived with women. <laughs> I mean, you probably lived with women. I don't have to live with somebody that I don't politically agree with. Mm. So it's a little bit different when your wife is saying, oh, you're not going to let me vote? That's cool. You know, we're not going to do your laundry today right. or whatever. I mean, nobody right. wants to deal with that at home. And I think that's one of the reasons across the country you see divisions like at Thanksgiving dinner. I don't have to deal with you. you right. know, and they don't want to. They should be invited uh, Thanksgiving dinner, but you don't have to do the laundry. <laughs> and that's where, I, that's where I would draw the line at that. You know, I would agree. So just before we go, I guess I, I, you've given me a wonderful tour here of the uh, Presidential Library and, and Museum for Herbert Hoover, my cousin. Um, but I've, I've noticed uh, th- throughout the entire exhibits and everything here, I'm nowhere included yeah. in, the, in the Hoover <laughs> Library. So I'm going to am... tell you how you can do that. So we're going through a museum <laughs> renovation. If you make a large enough donation, I'm oh, sure we can a, get a gallery the, named after you. I have to buy my way this. <laughs> this oh, is America, yeah. my friend. Yeah, yeah. I thought Hoover said that we have to be careful about capitalism getting too greedy. Uh, that's that's right. why you should donate to that's nonprofit right. entities like the Herbert Hoover <laughs> Foundation. No, seriously, but uh, it's been great uh, uh, to be here today. And I encourage people to stop by. It's right off I-80. Okay, this is like one of the biggest thoroughfares in the country. I-80 begins at the George Washington Bridge in New York City, and it ends at the Bay Bridge in uh, San Francisco and Oakland. So if you're ever traveling across the country on I-80, you get off in West Branch. There's a big sign that says Herbert Hoover Hoover, uh, uh, Presidential Museum and Library. Um, uh, Stop by and and see these good people here. And um, 
they'll uh, and, and, and look and, and look for my piece in the, yeah. in, in the exhibit. <laughs> you just put me in the corner. Just find a little dark corner. She's the education corner, and we do these little hunts. We make the students do so. You could have find the Michael Moore. That's true. We oh, do that. like the Where's Waldo? <laughs> yes, I'm for that. I'm for listen. I'm for. I'm down with the cause. Anything I can help the family. That's all I'm about is helping the family. Well, thank you for having me here, and uh, um, um, I've really enjoyed my my time here. And um, if you ever have a little addition you put on, you know, a little guest room I could stay in whenever I come back, I'd be happy with that too. So, <laughs> thank, thank you for you. coming. Well, thanks thank for you. coming. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Elizabeth and Lynn and Craig, very much uh, for our time here today. And there you go. That was my afternoon at the Herbert Hoover, President Herbert Hoover, uh, elected in. 1928 thrown out in 1932 the presidential his his presidential library museum and birthplace some very nice people there that uh, showed us around and uh and boy if he only knew there would be three employees of the federal government uh actually trying to say some nice things about him that was very sweet and uh i'm, I'm only sorry my parents aren't still with me here where they could have heard this because um, they didn't even know, I didn't know that uh, we were even related or that we came from this amazing long line of Quakers. Uh, so there you go, folks. Um, thank you. Thank you to Henry Louis Gates for having me on his show and filling me in about my ancestors uh, in this country. Uh, if you have a chance to watch that show sometime, I think you can get it on the on demand on PBS or I'll post a link uh, to that episode of Finding Your Roots. Thanks, everybody, uh, for tuning in. Thank you for being with me for these 100 episodes of Rumble. It means a lot to me. I love hearing from you. Please write me at mike at michaelmoore.com. Uh, that's my email address. I read my own email. You can leave a voice message, a voicemail for me on the link that's right here on the podcast page. Um, I love hearing from you. Uh, it, it allows you to leave a minute, a minute long recording. Uh, I do listen to them. So thank you uh, for sending those to me. Um, and thank you to uh, the people who have helped me with this uh, podcast in these first 100 episodes. Many people have helped uh, and, and I've had many incredible guests. And uh, thank you to all of you who've appeared on, on, on Rumble with Michael Moore. Thank you to my executive producer, Basil Hamden. Uh, who is the force behind this show. And uh, thank you to Nick Quaz, uh, who is our editor, and uh, Donald Bornstein, who is our tech help here and traveled with us there uh, in Iowa, editing and working on this while <laughs> driving in a minivan. So uh, thank you to everybody who's participated in this. Um, I just looked at the counter here, and we are going to hit our 13 millionth listener here sometime in the next uh, 24 to 48 hours. Very cool. Again, way beyond anything we expected. And um, honored to have so many million uh, downloads of this of this uh, show, this uh, podcast. So thank you for that. And I will talk to you very soon. Happy 100 to everybody who's a participant in Rumble with Michael Moore. And uh, you'll hear from me shortly on episode 101. Take care. Please be safe. And... We have work to do. Thank you. Once in khaki suits, our gee, we look swell, full of that Yankee doodly dum. Half a million boots went slogging through hell, and I was the kid 
with a drum Oh, say, don't you remember They called me Al It was Al all the time Say, don't you remember I'm your pal Buddy, can you spare 